The Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. The following is a true crime investigation. Following homicide detectives David Campbell and Joe Lewis as they struggle to solve a series of mysterious murders set around the south of England from 1967 to 2002. We believe these murders to have some connection with the occult, and there are some people who believe that these crimes are truly supernatural, whilst others lean towards evidence that would suggest these murders were committed by multiple killers, all copying each other. Indeed, as we dive deeper into this mysterious case, common themes begin to emerge suggesting that all of these murders may very well be connected to a dark, sinister cult. In each case, the murder victim was last seen with a beautiful young woman in a red dress. These sirens of death seemingly prey upon lonely, unsuspecting men with murderous intent. Every victim has been a lonely male who has fallen into the trap of lies and seduction. Each victim lured by these seemingly innocent women to their homes on the naive promise of spending the night with such beauty, only to disappear never to be seen alive again. In each case, their corpses have been discovered washed up on the rivers, coastline, or waterways of southern England, approximately one month or lunar cycle from the date of the victim's disappearance. Indeed, all dates coincide with a monthly new moon, a time when the moon is directly in line with Earth and the sun, exerting a strong pull on the oceans of the world and thus causing more pronounced tides. However, despite only having been missing for just one single calendar month, their remains all seem unnaturally decomposed, as if they had died many years ago, 
their corpses appearing like ancient mummies, their skeletons protruding through their broken-down skin, yellow, ash-like, and frail. Our investigations have revealed three recorded incidents of these killings, and we believe all three killings are linked. The three murders are all hauntingly similar to the point where coincidence can surely be ruled out. You are about to jump down a hideous rabbit hole of murder, mystery, and myth, which is sure to leave those faint of heart or easily disturbed, feeling deeply unsettled and horrified. For the horrors we are about to share with you today are indeed entirely true, at times violent, at times downright sickening. All names and events have been changed or altered out of respect for those who do not wish to be mentioned within this story. The details of the cult we shall talk about have still not been established and are still under investigation. We will do whatever we must not to hamper any future inquiry. Now that you have been suitably warned, let our story begin. The Mystery File Collective's investigation opens in 1984. However, the first known incident of these killings dates back to 1967, with the death of a young man named Ryan Parsons. This particular murder remains unsolved. Initially, police officials of the small Oxfordshire village of Islip believed the death to have been a suicide. Although this was ruled to be inconclusive, notably because the deceased had an unusual carving of an ankh drawn into the flesh of his back with a sharp blade. The peculiar detail had led investigations to believe that he was involved in some sort of occult ceremony. The Egyptian symbol of the ankh is also known as the key of life and is the symbol of eternity. The young man was later found drowned, and the rumour was that he had suffered in the past with his mental health and may have taken his own life. Through lack of evidence, an open verdict was declared to that particular death in 1967 and the case was only reopened as a murder inquiry after circumstantial evidence began to link this death to a subsequent murder inquiry in 1984. This second murder in the series is where we shall begin, as this second death was investigated with more intensity by Scotland Yard Police. This second murder case involved a certain degree of media attention 
as the victim was the lead singer of the now-forgotten punk band, Army of Darkness. His name was Edmund Winters, a young man of just 23 years of age. The band he sang for was seen as revolutionary at the time, for they were famous for clashing gothic melodies with hardcore metal. They were a huge hit on the gothic underground scene, despite only ever releasing four songs. Their success is often attributed to the tragic death of their young, charismatic frontman, elevating their slim creative catalogue to cult status. Indeed, they released something only recently, unofficially, decades after their lead singer's mysterious death, which precipitated the young band's early breakup. On the night of Edmund Winter's disappearance, he was last seen talking to a beautiful woman in a red dress. They had met inside one of London's most luxurious nightclubs. It was an invite-only type of club, where only the most rich and famous were allowed to enter. The band had been out celebrating their success that night, as they had finally just made it big with their third song, which proved to be a very lucrative hit among the masses at that time. People were even comparing them to some of the greatest punk rock bands to ever emerge from the United Kingdom. The British music press enjoyed ironic headlines like The future seems very bright for Army of Darkness. They had finally made it into the big league and were receiving the love, respect, and recognition that their hard work most definitely deserved. However, nobody in their right minds would have expected a glorious night of celebration like this to end so bloody and tragic. That was until the mysterious red-dressed woman showed up in the bar of a nightclub they were celebrating in her body seductively thrust outwards, directly in the line of sight of Edmund Winters from where he was sitting in a VIP booth in an exclusive area at the back of the club. As soon as his eyes met hers, she winked at him and blew him a kiss, seductively inviting him to come over and join her. His companions say Edmund was immediately entranced as if under the love spell of a powerful witch. He sauntered over to her at the bar, bought her a drink, and almost immediately the two seemed lost in each other's presence. Their eyes locked onto each other with an intensity that felt unnatural. Nobody had seen Edmund act like this before. Nobody recognized this mysterious woman. However, her profound beauty was noted by the rest of the band. Her marvelous dress suggested that she too 
was very much part of the rich and glamorous showbiz elite. People simply presumed that she was just another celebrity, perhaps a supermodel, something along those lines. She was described by those we spoke to as hypnotically beautiful and drew no suspicion at all. Although, Edmund's band members were surprised by the way that he was behaving. His love-struck visard was certainly out of character. He'd certainly dropped his veneer of cool. And at the same time, they were beyond pleased for their young front man. For as they remember, Edmund had recently confessed about how he was struggling with keeping up the pretense of being a cool frontman of a punk band. He was struggling with forming friendships and was lonely. Maybe this woman would be good for him. Not to mention her beauty was such that it was described as almost unearthly, like a goddess. She could have fallen to earth from Mount Olympus into that exclusive London nightclub. And now here she was, capturing the eye of every red-blooded male in that club. So it was no surprise that Edmund seemed entranced by her energy, beguiled by her beauty and grace, staring longingly into her eyes without speaking stroking her back and leaning into her body, embracing her scent and so forth. The two danced the night away together, sitting down only to drink, where they could be heard laughing loudly throughout the night. Nothing seemed unduly strange, unusual, or out of place within a club like this where many celebrities would meet and greet on a weekly basis. The last known sighting of Edmund Winters and the mysterious red-dressed woman was of them leaving the nightclub and vanishing together arm in arm down a nearby dark alley under the light of a new moon. Edmund Winters was never to be seen alive again. Exactly one calendar month or lunar cycle later, on the eve of the following new moon, Edmund's ash-like remains were found by a fisherman who was illegally fishing by the River Thames. His hook caught into something heavy within the murky waters the old man thought he'd caught something valuable. Thinking it was an old relic that could be worth thousands, he trudged through the water himself to grab a hold of this heavy object, for his fishing rod could never withstand the weight of such a thing. And the fisherman's screams travelled far and wide the moment he saw the dead man's face, for it had been eroded to the bone skin all yellow, wrinkled, and loose around its protruding skull, like an ancient Egyptian mummified corpse, 
as if it had been dead for many years. He threw the weathered body onto the shore of the river's bank and immediately ran through the streets of London calling for help. Police soon arrived to witness the body, a corpse so grotesquely decomposed it could have been a thousand years old. Its skeleton was visibly protruding from its leathery yellow flesh, the hair on the skull white, like an old man. Seagulls were pecking the remaining maggots that nested within its eye sockets and open stomach. Nobody could have recognized the corpse to be that of Edmund Winters, who disappeared just one month previous. When police pathologists finally received the body for post-mortem, they were surprised by the rate of decay of not just the man's flesh, but his bones also. And the only evidence that they could find to indicate that this was indeed the dead corpse of the lead singer of up-and-coming punk band Army of Darkness were the clothes that were dressed upon the body. For the ancient-looking body wore a pair of black drainpipe jeans, one single black boot studded with pins. It still wore a black leather jacket with rusted spikes around the collar and sleeves, and hauntingly, the ripped t-shirt the corpse wore had a picture of Edmund's band emblazoned across it with the title Army of Darkness written underneath. The clothing matched the exact attire that Edmund was last seen wearing when he left the nightclub with that mysterious lady in a red dress. This death was quickly ruled as murder. As forensics later discovered, the man's collarbones had been snapped downwards, and this was later suggested that he may have been pushed or held under the water either by something mechanical or by a killer strong enough to drown the young rock star. When they removed his clothes, upon the dead man's back had been carved an ancient Egyptian ankh, an ancient cross that carries a teardrop-shaped loop in place of a vertical upper bar, a symbol of eternal life all suggesting that whatever else happened to Edmund Winters before he met his death, the man had been stripped of his clothes, and this ancient symbol had been carved into his flesh by something dagger-like while he was still alive, the conclusion being that he had then been redressed and drowned in what was beginning to bear the hallmarks of ritualistic ceremony. With this newfound evidence in mind, Scotland Yard began the now infamous murder investigation known as the Red Dress Murder Case. Two homicide detectives, David Campbell and Joe Lewis, were assigned to this case in the winter of 1984. What they were to discover during their investigations of this case has baffled many police officers to this day. Even now, 
in 2022, we still do not understand the true motives behind the murder of Edward Winters, nor the death of Ryan Parsons in 1967, or the final unsolved murder in 2001. All we can do is document what happened to the detectives in the exploration of this case and hope that maybe one day someone may come forward with information that may help. Perhaps somebody out there is wise enough to finally put to bed the true motives behind the mysterious killings once and for all. Perhaps they can shed some light on the mysterious chief suspect. We live in hope. Back then, the detectives began their investigation into the death of Edmund Winters once his identity had been confirmed. Their first port of call was a visit to the luxurious nightclub in London where Edmund was last seen with the mysterious red-dressed woman. Upon entering, they were greeted warmly by bar staff, some of whom worked the evening Edmund Winters disappeared. The detectives came by deliberately early, before the club had opened, in the hope of grabbing some time with the staff without disruption. Their immediate priority was to request an interview with John Blake, the bartender who was working that night, taking care of the Army of Darkness party and tasked with running drinks to the young rock star and his mysterious consort in the red dress. Hello, Mr. John Blake. I'm Detective Campbell, uh, Detective David Campbell, and this is my partner, Joe Lewis. I would just like to ask you a few questions regarding the night of Edmund's disappearance, if that's all right. I understand, officers, John Blake said, while sitting back in his chair. But I've already been questioned about this months prior and, well, when the first gent disappeared with... With her? Yeah, we are aware of this, John, Detective Lewis answered. But now that we know that this is a murder investigation, we have to approach the case from a, a new perspective, you see. Yeah, I understand. We've read about it in the press, how they found this body frightening. Well, I guess you want to ask me about the girl in particular, right? Yes, correct, Lewis replied, pulling out his notebook. So, uh, did you notice anything suspicious about this strange woman? I mean, did she seem cunning or sly or sinister in any way? Honestly, the woman was polite and she was delicate with her words and very sophisticated. However, I found all this very unsettling. This whole incident does, uh... Well, it reminds me of a bizarre tale I heard when I was in my youth. The whole Egyptian cross thing that was carved into the fella's back. The woman in the red dress. I mean... Look. There was a death in my village with all of this stuff. Young lad by the name of Ryan Parsons. I always thought it was just an old wives tale were happened to him. 
but I read the press report about the murder of Edmund Winters and, well, I was worried you might think it was me because the death in my village is similar and then, well, I was serving the fella here and, oh, I don't know. You're not a suspect, the detective assured, but any and all information we can gather may well be useful. I guess so, John sighed. But you're going to think I'm mad. I used to live in a village named Islip near Oxford. I was born and bred there. This death I was telling you about was in 1967. There was this crazy farmer named Michael Parsons who lived there and I used to tend the bar at the local pub where he would often drink and... Well, this fella was very odd. Always going on about his son and how he was abducted and then later killed by a mysterious witch in a red dress. A red dress, you say? Lewis probed, writing in his notebook. Indeed, John replied. He said she was very young and beautiful. However, unlike the woman who Edmund disappeared with, this woman had brown hair, not blonde. And this was years ago, so it can't be the same woman. But there's stuff the same. Go on, Detective Campbell smiled. Okay then, but this was 17 years ago, John snapped. There's no way this is the same woman. Probably not, John. But we do get copycat killers. Copycat killers? John repeated, confused by the concept. Yeah, Campbell replied. It's when a murderer copies another. Perhaps out of inspiration. I, uh, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, not many people do. But do you want to tell us something about this death in your village? Explain why it's similar. Right. Okay. It was a long time ago it happened. A young lad met a girl. A stranger to the village. Beautiful she was. Red dress. Disappeared on the night of a new moon. Turned up dead in the river one month later. Corpse. Horribly decomposed with a cross with a loop carved in his back. Like the papers say Edmund Winters had. Weird, eh? The detectives looked at each other. They thanked the barman for his information. Partly believing he was making it up. The similarities, too, grotesquely similar. They asked management for another copy of the CCTV footage that was saved the night Edmund disappeared. Upon investigating the tape... They can see John serving both Edmund and the lady in the red dress. The woman had blonde hair, tied in a high-side ponytail. She was relatively tall, roughly six feet in height, with a long red dress which looks very expensive and glamorous. One thing Detective Lewis noticed is that the woman kept on whispering in Edmund's ear, as if bewitching him with her words, almost like she was putting a spell on him. Both detectives felt silly for even considering this. But after listening to the story from the bartender, the rumours of her being a witch began to feel true. With this information in hand, on the 9th of December, 
Detectives Campbell and Lewis went on their way to the isolated village of Islip. The possibility that these two murders were related or the work of one man felt remote, but the similarities were enough to warrant further investigation. Unsure of where to look to first, they arrived at the village's local pub that John, the nightclub barman, used to work at. It was 11.40am when they entered the premises. An old barman was serving people at the bar. They started conversation and were thrilled to discover that this man knew a lot about the village and its weird history. The man smirked upon seeing the smartly dressed men in their suits. Let me guess. Detectives from London, he laughed jokingly. Actually, we are, <laughs> chuckled Lewis, as they both walked towards him. What brings you to Islip, he said. Uh, we're investigating a murder, Campbell replied. And we discovered a lead which took us here. Have you heard about the murder of uh, Edmund Winters? Oh, yeah, I have, unfortunately. Been in the papers. He was such a young man, whirled at his feet. What happened to him is a tragedy. Is that why you've come here? I'm afraid it is, Campbell replied. You heard about the possible murder suspect, the young girl we was last seen with. She was wearing a red dress. We investigated the nightclub and the bartender there told us about a farmer named Michael Parsons. He used to talk about a witch in a red dress who seduced his son on the night he went missing. Do you know who this man is or where he lives? Ah, oh, yeah. I thought it all sounded so awfully familiar. Michael Parsons isn't as crazy as many people claim him to be. His son, Ryan, was sadly found dead exactly a month after he vanished with that strange woman in the red dress. I've lived here all my life, you see. I know he speaks the truth. This happened years ago, though. During the late 1960s. I can't imagine it's the same killer. But I understand why you've come here. The coincidence is too important to ignore. Unfortunately, we don't know much about what happened. But I'm sure Michael himself will be more than happy to help you with this investigation. The old barman smiled. Where can we find this Michael? Campbell asked. Well, he's just up the road from here. He lives in an old farmhouse surrounded by a large field full of cows and sheep. You can't miss it. Let me write it down for you. With this, the old man wrote the address down. Both detectives thanked him and were on their way to Michael's farm. At 12.05 p.m., that very same day, the detectives pulled up outside Michael Parsons' farm and began to look around for the farmer himself. They were getting desperate, so they entered his slaughterhouse after knocking to get his attention with no reaction. The cold chill upon entering the chiller, with all the skinned sheep, cows and pigs hung up by their legs and heads, made both the detectives feel uneasy, and thoughts of this old farmer, Michael Parsons, being the possible murderer, popped into both of their heads. Who goes there? A voice shouted. 
that a bloodied man dressed in blue overalls with a hockey mask stormed into view. He was carrying a messy meat cleaver, red with guts and gore. The detectives visibly jumped in fear, but then the butcher removed his mask and the farmer's old, mean-looking face appeared from behind it. What are you doing in my slaughterhouse? This is private property! I can have you both arrested for trespassing, he said, while still facing the blade of the cleaver towards the detectives. Campbell quickly showed the man his badge, and the butcher dropped the weapon. Embarrassment crept over him. I'm sorry, he said. I thought you were riffraff. You should have called first. I would have gotten dressed better and not looked so... I'm sorry about the mask. I lost my visor and, well, this just had to make do. And don't worry about it, chuckled Lewis. Perhaps it'd be better if we, uh, we took this interview outside. Now that Michael had calmed down and undressed from his bloody attire, he invited the detectives into his house living room for a proper inquiry. I suppose this is about that Edmund Winters... The rock star who went missing. Turned up dead with the same markings as my boy, Michael guessed, while looking out of the window. Same thing happened to my boy, Ryan. He went off with a beautiful red-dressed woman. But I bet you already know that, right? I'm afraid we do, Campbell sighed. What can you tell us about this woman? The woman in the red dress. It was my son's 18th birthday. The night that he met that wretched woman. We were out celebrating that night in 1967. We'd already eaten out and reunited with the family and so forth. But now I wanted to buy my son his first point or two. Maybe three if we were jolly enough. It was supposed to be a father and son bonding moment. But then he caught his eyes upon this very beautiful woman. He was eyeing him up from the bar. You know, he's happy for me, boy. His first night out and he was already drawing in the ladies. And if truth be told, I remember being worried about my son. He seemed to have few friends. He would isolate himself. He was... How could I describe him? He was lonely. He asked me if it was okay to go and talk to the girl. So I cheered him on and watched from afar. Truly proud of how grown up and confident me little lad had become. Then I went over and I spoke to her myself. She was kind. Polite, very mature. She never made me feel like I was a spare part or anything. Never wished for me to leave. The only thing she did that I thought was a bit rude was she would often whisper it in Ryan's ear. Which is rude excluding someone from a conversation. Whatever it was she was whispering. It seemed to send my lad in the fits of excitement. I presumed that she was just flirting with him and didn't want me to hear it, you know. 
I saw no problem with Ryan walking her home. So I bid them both farewell and... Well, that was the last I ever saw of my son. Until exactly one month later, when his dead body was found in one of the nearby forest lakes. Only he looked... Ancient. Like a rotten corpse from thousands of years ago. Then I remembered old tales my mother used to tell me when I was a boy. Dark fairy tales about witches who suck the youth out of the young so they could remain forever beautiful. Then there's this thing carved into the flesh of my lad. An ankh. A symbol of eternal life. Devil worship, I say. There used to be covens all around the south of England. During the Middle Ages, witches would seduce men with their magic, hypnotising them with their eyes and speech, placing love spells onto their victims and consuming their vitality, leaving them behind. Old. Weathered. Perfect. Like me. It wouldn't take long for a once young man to fall ill and die, leaving behind grotesque zombie-like corpses. I thought it was all just campfire tales, you know? The type of stories you tell your children to scare them into silence. It all sounded so silly and ridiculous to be believed. I know how insane I sound. But the way my son looked... That's the only explanation. It was a witch that killed my son. And maybe it's the same bitch who murdered Edmund too. After listening to Michael Parsons, the detectives left Islip with far more questions than answers. They couldn't help but see the similarities in the deaths of the two young men, but to link them to one person, or even a coven or a cult, would be next to impossible. Yet all the same, they could not disregard old Farmer Michael's story. The Ankh, the Egyptian symbol of eternal life, linking both deceased to area coincidence to discount. And whilst they suspected that there was some truth in old Michael Parsons' story, the lead eventually ran cold. That was until... 2001, for another had been slain. The corpse of an ancient-looking man was found the morning after a new moon in the southern English town of Rye at the confluence of three rivers, the Rotha, the Tillingham, and the Breed. It had been discovered by an elderly man named Thomas Peterson, who was just walking his pet dog early in the morning as the orange sun rose above the town 
to reveal a picture of coastal splendor, a harbor, and a rotten corpse. The body was being pushed up by the water stream towards where the man was walking. He screamed in horror at the sight, calling for help. Many came to the man's aid, and those that gathered bore witness to the floating body, which looked hideously twisted and deformed, to the point where onlookers debated as to whether it was a real human being. Police soon arrived to take control of the scene, shielding it from public view. The body had decomposed considerably, yellow skin clinging weakly to its skeletal remains. It was clear that the deceased was male, and first impressions would suggest quite young, as the corpse was clad in black and white converse basketball boots, a t-shirt of a rock band, and black skinny jeans. Yet the hair on the skull was as white as snow, despite being cut in a very modern style. The corpse dressed like a teenager, despite visibly passing for a man of over a hundred years old. When the police pathologist stripped the body, they could see quite clearly that the sign of an Egyptian ankh had been carved into the flesh of this man on his back. Immediately, this felt like a murder investigation. But who was he? Who was this corpse, seemingly of an old man, yet dressed so youthful? The deceased was soon identified as that of the body of a 19-year-old university student named Frederick Royce, who just like the other victims, was last seen on a night out exactly one month or lunar cycle ago. A native of the town of Rye, he had returned home from Cambridge University to celebrate his brother's birthday with a pub crawl of the town's taverns and bars. During the drunken evening, he had mentioned to his brother that he wasn't fitting in at university in Cambridge, that he had made few friends, felt isolated, and was lonely. During this pub crawl, he got chatting to what was described as a beautiful young woman in a long red dress. Her hair was also pushed into a ponytail, Except this time, her hair was red, not blonde or brown, like the killers before her. It didn't take long for the police to resurrect the red dress murder case. Detectives Campbell and Lewis, who were still detectives, 17 years after the 1984 case, were again assigned once more to investigate, a task they were excited to do both feeling that there was more to the murder cases of Edmund Winters in 1984 and the tenuously related death of Ryan Parsons in Islip in 1967, then a sudden realization dawned upon them. A new coincidence. This murder within this strange series of killings was another 17 years after the last which was a further 17 years before the murder of Ryan Parsons, 
who died in 1967. All three bodies found were bearing the ancient Egyptian Ankh, known also as the Key of Life, carved into their backs. It was becoming chillingly clear that the coincidences in the three killings could no longer be ignored. Perhaps the old farmer, Michael Parsons, was right. A witch really had been slaying these young men, perhaps every 17 years to fight back her aging. To subscribe to theories of a supernatural nature is not good for any detective. It is a surefire way to be taken off a murder case. So despite what their instincts were telling them, they determined to do whatever they could not to subscribe to such madness, though coincidences were far too evident to ignore. Detectives Campbell and Lewis already had access to the CCTV footage of Frederick's disappearance. Just like with Edmund, the footage was saved a month prior, when Frederick first vanished. And there she was. The detectives immediately recognized the face of the woman in the red dress as being the same woman from the 1984 incident too. However, she did not appear to have aged a day, but there was no mistaking it. This absolutely was the same woman who was last seen with the murdered Edmund Winters. Despite her not seeming to have aged, her hair had changed colour. She was no longer a brunette, but a redhead. Though without question, this was the same woman. Her body language and movements were the same. The way she whispered into Frederick's ear was very similar to the way that she had whispered into the ear of Edmund Winters back in 1984. But who was she? That evening, detectives took to the town bars and taverns of Rye to meet with locals and show them a digital image of the woman they wanted to speak to. Someone, somewhere, must know who she is. But they didn't. Of the scores of people they interviewed in the taverns and bars, Nobody could recognize the flame-haired siren in the red dress. Then approaching last orders, the detectives decided to give up for the night. A coastal mist was beginning to descend as they crossed the quaint English streets to their car. Just as they reached their vehicle, they noticed, there, directly ahead, the beautiful red-haired woman from their photograph crossing the road in front of them, wearing a red dress. In disbelief, they watched her as she looked around shiftily, wrapping herself in a hooded black shawl as the ever-descending mist began to swirl all around her. She stopped suddenly at a distinctive vintage red Triumph Spitfire and quickly jumped in. The two detectives started their car, and with hearts racing, slowly began to follow her, 
making a note of the registration plate that was on her car. They followed the little red spitfire up and out of the town and into the darkness of the English countryside that surrounds Rye. The road was quickly shrouded in a fog that had now drifted in quite heavily from the coast. The road in front of them became more and more remote until they were at last on a narrow, single-tracked road. Now utterly aware that she was being followed, the car in front began to slow down to a crawl. Ten miles an hour. Five. Crawling along the dark, misted road. Then she stopped her car altogether. And before the detectives could react, the red-haired woman clad in a black hooded shawl jumped out and began to walk, her image swimming in the mist and headlights of her stationary car. The mysterious woman's car was blocking the road in front. The detectives jumped out of their car, calling for her to stop. But she didn't. The detectives quickened their step to reach her. She did the same, maintaining her distance. Then she began to disrobe. The black shawl she was dressed in was cast to the floor, revealing a red dress. The detectives quickened their step towards her, but inexplicably, the woman retained her distance, the mist all the while swimming around her. She then disrobed her dress, which was all she wore, and now, before them, she was naked. On her back, the detectives could see carved on her flesh the ancient Egyptian symbol of the Ankh. The woman began to laugh, and that laughter seemingly echoed around the misted hilltops around them. Detective Campbell called on her to stop, and now they were both running to catch her. They could not understand how she was keeping her distance. When suddenly, Detective Campbell took hold of Detective Lewis and alerted him to what he had seen on the banks of the dark road around them. Many people were gathering. They lined the road from the hills either side. In fear, the detectives looked around at the silhouetted figures watching them. Many men had gathered and were lining the road in dark cloaks, all with wooden masks. They carried sickles, hooks and cleavers in their hands and began to chant solemnly the words undecipherable and unknown. Hearts pounding, the two detectives turned and fled, running as fast as they could to their car. That night, they left Rye and headed back to London, never to return. The reg plate of the car that the mysterious woman in the red dress jumped into did not match any records that could be identified. No further clues surfaced in the death of Frederick Royce. The case remains open.
and to our knowledge, there hasn't been another death of this nature for nearly 20 years. The detectives that investigated this case now fully believe that some sort of evil magic, black witchcraft, is responsible for the death of the three victims we have spoken about. They believe they have not only met the head witch, but also her coven. And they believe that she has the protection of perhaps many people connected to this coven in the southwest of England. How many and where they practice, we do not know. Where this powerful witch is now is a mystery the detectives do not want to contemplate. The events surrounding what happened to them in Rye has changed who they are as people. And the Mystery File Collective agree with their conclusions. We believe a dark witch is responsible for the deaths of these poor young men. Her aim, we believe, is eternal youth. However, after 20 years, the witch must be growing older now. We believe it is only a matter of time before she strikes again. So, if you are young and you are on a night out in the south of England and you see a young beautiful woman in a red dress, don't even look at her. You mustn't speak to her. No matter how beguiling her beauty may be, you may just end up dead.